0: Hey, good morning, happy Monday morning, and welcome to the last question, our first Monday morning meditation. Does that name sound hokey? That name kind of sounds a little bit hokey. Uh, It was originally Monday Musings. Um, That one sounded even hokeyer. Naturally, I was trying to come up with something alliterative, something fun. It's a work in progress. Feel free to let me know uh, either in a review or hit me up on social media if you've got a different idea, if you've got a better idea. If you simply wanted me to call it Monday Show, um, that's cool too. I'm coming to you on a Monday morning, uh, not as a replacement for the normal Thursday release, um, but really as an addition, as a supplement, if you will. So these, These episodes are going to be far shorter, 30 minutes or less. Uh, I know if you're, if you're listening to this and you know me, you're going to just roll your eyes and say, mm-hmm. okay, we'll see if that happens. But nevertheless, that's the target, 30 minutes or less. And the goal with this is to give you something to lead your week, a question to ask yourself, a question to ask your team, a question to ask your friends and family. Uh, questions are among the most powerful ways to communicate and they are one of the most powerful ways to elicit a useful response, an impactful response from someone else, right? It's one thing for me to simply talk at you, talk to you, give you information. I can tell you my life story. I can I can tell you what I know about your life story. And, and to some extent, perhaps it may get you through the next five minutes. It may get you through some task you have to do at work. But ultimately, for you to have the most impact you can on the world around you and for you to realize your full potential it's much more useful for me to ask you questions to elicit a response from you. I think questions are very powerful um, and often the simplest ones can be the most powerful, the most impactful to whatever you're doing. So this morning, I wanna ask you uh, a simple question. Why are you doing what you're doing? I'm known to ask this question a lot I ask this question of my teammates often. I've asked this question of my bosses. I've asked this question of people who uh, are working with me, who report to me, if you will, on paper. I've asked this question of, of just about everyone. Why are we doing this? Why is this the rule? Why is this the norm? And I can tell you, you know, the, the answer, the, the list of possible answers is near infinite, but I can, but from my perspective, there is one answer that is absolutely never useful, never acceptable in my book, because it's what we've always done. If that's your answer, it's simply another way of saying, I have no idea and I don't really care. Or I don't understand why we're doing it either. I've just kind of fallen into that rut. I've fallen into that trap. I listened to somebody else who said, this is the way it always is. And I didn't feel it necessary to challenge that. I didn't feel strong enough to challenge it. Or I'm not invested enough in the process. I'm not invested enough in the mission, in the task, in the team to push beyond because we've always done it that way or because that's the way we've always done it. That's not a good place to be. So ask yourself this today, tomorrow, this week at some point, why are you doing what you're doing? Pick out something you're doing at work. It could be at home. But oftentimes, the more often we ask this question at work, the more things we start to see that we could either be doing better or we don't need to be doing because they're not, in fact, important relative to what the organization's goal or mission is. Why are we doing this thing? Why are we doing what we're doing? So I'll tell you a quick story. When I joined the Air Force in 2008, after uh, graduating ROTC at Ohio State, the the so-called war on terror, President George W. Bush's war on terror was old news to a lot of people, certainly not to the families who were losing loved ones downrange, certainly not to the, to the families and the friends of, of active duty soldier, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen deployed all over the world. It wasn't old news to them, but to, I would say, a majority of Americans, right? We had been engaged already for five years plus in Iraq. Uh, close to seven years in Afghanistan. And and one of the things I heard when I first entered the Air Force from from the generation above me, ahead of me, was, well, the Air Force has been engaged for 15 years. Plus, we've been at war for more than a decade. And as a young airman, as someone who thought he understood a decent amount of military history, a decent amount of history in general, I was like, what are you talking about? 9 11 happened in 2001. I remember where I was, went to college a couple of years later, graduated. I'm in the Air Force now. So we've been engaged several years, but certainly not more than a decade. And the last time we were engaged, yes, Kosovo, uh, East Africa, but really, Gulf War, 1991, right? And I never asked that question, right? So this is really an early example in my case where I said, I, I did not ask why are we doing what we're doing? And what, what, what that gets to is a lot of the mentality of some of the old generation that I, that I knew, a lot of the mentality of airmen who I was running across, not just in my own community, but elsewhere in the Air Force, was, was driven heavily by this idea that the Air Force has been at war constantly for 15 years, that the Air Force has been engaged, has been uh, going up against an, an enemy, an adversary, a potential adversary for 15 years. And I'm thinking, well, the Cold War has been over. Yes, the Russians are resurgent. Yes, we talk about Russia, China in the news. North Korea is kind of this wild card over in the corner. All these things, yes, are fair and valid, but I still didn't really understand it. And it took me a couple of years of, of my own reading, my own study, reading what I could on Iraq and Afghanistan, Part two, if you will, Iraq, part two in 2003, Afghanistan post 9-11 in 2001, 2002, and onward to, to really understand what they were talking about, which led me all the way back, in fact, to the Gulf War in 1991. So after the Gulf War ended, after President George H.W. Bush had, had met the UN mandate or had met the mandate he publicized, which was to remove the Iraqi occupying force from Kuwait. When the allied forces withdrew, we eventually stood up and maintained no-fly zones over the northern and southern parts of Iraq. We established them at different times, but for the majority of the 90s, we were patrolling these two different no-fly zones in an attempt to protect Iraqis from their government. A subset of the population from a... uh, tyrannical, and dangerous government. So when the older generation that I knew that I encountered when I entered the Air Force in 2008 was talking about the Air Force being at war, being engaged, being operational all this time, what they were referring to, in addition to other actions here and there across the world, what they were really referring to was that environment, operations Northern Watch and Southern Watch. The members of the fighter community, the airlift and air refueling communities, the command and control airborne communities, who were engaged nonstop in the airspace over Iraq, which included intercepting Iraqi aircraft. I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, and so, of course, the news is not something I paid a lot of attention to. So perhaps this is something that my parents, that our parents saw on a regular basis or heard about. But of course, I didn't spend much time engaged in the 90s thinking about these types of things. I didn't know about going into the military back then. So Northern Watch and Southern Watch and that post-Gulf War relatively peaceful period passed through, through me, for me, without much appreciation of what it really meant, what, what was really going on. So in 2008, 2009, 2010, as I'm trying to get my feet under me as a young airman, I'm slowly figuring out that, that what is driving some of how we look at problems in the Air Force, the conflicts we expect to see, the conflicts we train for, th- that mentality is fed in part or perhaps mostly by the Northern Watch, Southern Watch 90s environment. Not an era of great power competition. It was the Boris Yeltsin era. Right. It was a different Russia then in between the Soviet Union's dissolution and the, and the rise of Vladimir Putin. But from an airman's perspective, the Air Force was tasked continuously and we were working hard to maintain those no-fly zones. So why do we do what we do? In part, when I joined the Air Force in 2008, some of what we did was driven by that experience. So that's one element to it. So when I walked into my next to last, second to last class with my seniors in ROTC, I had asked them to read the biography of John Boyd. John Boyd was, uh, he eventually made Colonel an active duty Air Force fighter pilot, served during the Korean War up to the Vietnam War era. So think 50s and 60s. And John Boyd is well known as someone in Air Force lore now who bucked the system antagonized his superiors on a regular basis, antagonized his peers, wasn't necessarily the picture of the family man, but arguably did more for fighter tactics and the rise of the fighter pilot than anybody else in the Air Force. Popularized something called the OODA loop, which I'm not going to get into here, maybe in a future episode. Um, But beyond that, John Boyd was one of these people who saw the value of knowing how to maneuver in a fighter airplane, F-15, F-16, think that kind of airplane now, who saw the value in learning how to better maneuver through altitude, up and down, not just left and right, and saw the value in teaching fighter pilots how to dogfight, how to engage in close quarters with an enemy aircraft, something that when we first started out in Korea, we did not do well. Something when we started out in Vietnam, we did not do well. And, and was part of, uh, is part of the history of both the Navy and the Air Force's weapons schools, is teaching pilots the tactics necessary to adapt to the enemy in real time. So, John Boyd, in a lot of ways, I thought, was a, a pivotal piece to Air Force history, because if you fast forward from John Boyd's tenure, from his time on active duty, to the Gulf War, end of 1990 into the beginning of 1991, our military was postured really for one thing, right? We were postured to face off against the Soviet Union, to protect Western Europe, and if necessary, to execute nuclear weapons in a war that would quickly escalate into a no kidding global conflict. That's what we were prepared to do. So it wasn't like we didn't have an air force. We had fighter aircraft, we had air refuelers, we had bombers, we had the whole the whole inventory. But really, a lot of the attention in that Cold War era was bombers, was strategic nuclear weapons, long-range bombers, big airplanes with tanker aircraft in tow, making sure that they could get to their targets on the other side of the world. Meanwhile, John Boyd and those that really believed in the fighter pilot and the fighter plane were relegated to places like Nellis Air Force Base in the middle of the desert, Southern Nevada, otherwise known as Las Vegas, to really really refine and teach what made a fighter pilot a damn good fighter pilot. Fast forward to the end of the 80s, and now it's 1990, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait The Saudi Arabians ask for help. The the Middle East right now is, is trying to figure out whether this is going to escalate, if this is going to turn into more. Saddam Hussein is a powerful military. At the time, one of the world's most powerful had just come off of a long war with neighboring Iran. And we need air power in addition to land and sea power to get this mission done, to push the Iraqis out of Kuwait. The United States... And Allied Forces put about a half million people into the theater. Desert Shield leads to Desert Storm. We expel the Iraqis from Kuwait. And on we go into the 90s and into Northern Watch and Southern Watch and what I talked about before. Why this story is interesting and why I'm sharing it with you this morning is because when I came into class and I asked the students, what was your impression of John Boyd? and his position in Air Force history. They gave me a couple of opinions. And I walked them through the timeline, 50s to 60s to the 70s, uh, the issues that we ran into in the air in Korea, over Korea, in the air over Vietnam, what was the predominant message in the 80s. And then I said, what happened November, 1989? And I got silence and I got stares. And eventually I had one tentative hand kind of go halfway up. And I said, yes, November, 1989. And, and luckily he said, the student said the, the wall, the wall. And in my mind, I could just see the dot, 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 right? Like the wall, what the wall, give me something else. The wall, the wall fell, the wall, what November, 1989, the Berlin wall Begins to fall, if you will. East Germans cross into West Germany. East Berliners cross into West Berlin without fear uh, for the first time of the East German secret police gunning them down at the border. Between November 1989 and December 1991, dissolution of the Soviet Union on Christmas Day in 1991. That is a 23 month period that is absolutely pivotal to understanding not just the history of the 20th century, but specific to this story, the history of how the Air Force evolved and how the US military evolved and how the world's political climate evolved. So in the period between the fall of the Berlin Wall, cracks beginning to form in the Iron Curtain and the dissolution of the Soviet Union proper in 1991, in that 23 month period, The Gulf War happened. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. We took a half million people into the theater, landed many of them on Saudi soil, executed Operation Desert Shield, and then eventually Desert Storm, where we entered Kuwait from the south, wheeled around from the west to cut off the retreat. And the ground battle famously took about 100 hours. Including tactical the the application of tactical air power, a descendant I believe, and I would argue, of John Boyd and others like him and her others like him in the Air Force, uh, who have given rise to some pretty capable fighter pilots who are now looking to employ the latest and greatest, the F-22 and the F-35 in combat. But as I'm going through this history and I'm talking with the students, we, we get to November, 1989, the wall. And I say, what happened in 1991? And I just get stares and no one is able to pick up on this one. Soviet Union, Christmas 91, okay. In At Christmas, 1990 to the early parts of 1991 is the Gulf War. When I reference the Gulf War, I have a student raise their hand and they say, you mean so so Afghanistan? Or are you talking about something else? And it struck me, and I and you're gonna you're gonna listen to this and think, well, how the hell did you not know that, dude? Of course, I mean, they they weren't born during the Gulf War. You're right. Uh, some of them can talk relatively well about World War II. Rarely can they talk about Korea or Vietnam. But certainly, none of us were born. Neither I nor they were born during the World War II period. But the Gulf War is, I think, pivotal in understanding recent Air Force history, and none of them had ever heard of it. So I I pulled the curtain even farther back, and I drew a super crude map of Kuwait, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Iran, the Persian Gulf on the board. I had them look it up on their devices, which they're already on anyway. And let's talk through Desert Shield and Desert Storm for a minute. And I get all the way to the end of the timeline. We talk through what Schwarzkopf had led the forces through and planned us through and what ended up happening after that hundred hours. And then I asked them this question. I said, why did Osama bin Laden have a beef with the United States? What did he not like about us? It's easy for us to say. He and his followers don't like freedom, okay? They don't like Americans, okay? They don't like the Constitution, No, nah, okay. But, but part of Osama bin Laden's genesis as an enemy of the United States was the Gulf War and our entry into not just the theater into the Middle East, but specifically us putting troops and equipment and our military forces on Saudi soil. He held that against the Saudi government as well. So I look at the students and they just kind of, I get some wide eyes, I get some looks, I get some slow nods like, okay. Osama bin Laden was upset, doesn't do it justice, right? He was quite angry at the fact that we had entered uh, not just the Middle East, but we had placed our troops onto land that is amongst the holiest to Islam worldwide, Right, two of Islam's holiest sites from Saudi Arabia. In 1993, the World Trade Center experiences the first its first attack. What we learned later was an attempt to bring the towers down. It simply didn't work. In 1993, a truck full of explosives in a parking garage did a lot of damage and killed Americans, but did not bring the towers down. The students hadn't heard of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing either. Fast forward several years later, maybe five years or so, 1998, we experienced two bombings in East Africa at US embassies, the USS Cole, an American destroyer, is attacked in a port in Yemen. And in 2001, 19 hijackers, most of whom are Saudi nationals, fly airplanes into the World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, um, and because of the heroism of passengers on board, the fourth one flies into a hillside in Western Pennsylvania, instead of what could have been the White House or the Capitol or another high profile target. So we're getting to the end of the class and my message for the students is simple. I say, at at this point, the reason why we're reading what we're reading, the reason why I have you read the Boyd biography, the reason why I want you to at least go to the Wikipedia page for the Gulf War or look up what operations Northern and Southern Watch were is, is to enable you to ask all sorts of questions, but at the very least one. What might the world look like? What might history have turned into were it not for X, were it not for this situation? If John Boyd had not created the movement around fighter tactics that he had, what would our air to air and air to ground capability have been stepping into the Gulf War? As prepared as we may have been to fight the Soviet Union, would we have been in a position to fight? during the Gulf War. And and I don't know, I'm, I'm, this isn't because I think it's a yes or a no. It's simply because to be an engaged member of the military today and to be an engaged citizen today requires you to be able to ask questions and to think through these types of thought experiments, I think. Because if you can think through this type of experiment, this type of idea, What if this did or did not happen? What would it look like? What about that previous event should I appreciate? Not in the sense that it was a good event, but to appreciate the event for its impact on my now and its impact on my near future and its impact on my far future. What would history look like if that event were not to have happened? What would history look like if we had not engaged in Desert Shield and Desert Storm? It's impossible to know for sure. But on the flip side of that question, what did our engagement in Saudi Arabia and surrounding Iraq in 1991 lead to? Well, it led to several events in the 90s. It led to a particular posture on behalf of the Air Force. And now fast forward to 2008, when I entered the Air Force, We have a particular outlook on how we've been engaged for the past 15 years, 16 years, 17 years. Fast forward again to 2020, 2021, when my students are getting ready to enter the Air Force, we've been in Afghanistan, talking about it, engaged in Afghanistan, working with that government for 20 years almost. and are that much farther into the future from the Gulf War. But all of these events are connected to each other in a relatively straight, I shouldn't say straight, in a relatively singular chain. Why do you do what you do? Why do we train the way we train? Our experience has taught us to train in a particular way for better or worse. So my purpose here is not to say we should or should not be doing something in particular. The point is understand why. Then you can articulate an argument as to what you should do. Why do we train this way? Because for the better part of 20 years, we've been engaged in these types of environments. For the 10 years before that, we were doing this. Our ability to command and control from the air our ability to refuel, our ability to put fighters up in the air for several hours at a time, our ability to surveil, our ability to dot, dot, dot. What we had to do in that period of time has fed what we wanted to be ready to do, in addition to all the other contingencies that we could have thought of. Now, the world continues to evolve Many people out there are now talking about great power competition. We continue to talk about Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, India, and Pakistan are still on the radar. We talk about South America now more often. The world is a complex place, and for you, wherever it is you work, wherever it is you live, day to day, you may not have the ability to pay attention to any of that. And it's not a smarts thing. It's not a knowledge thing. It's simply because you, you don't have the time. You don't have the bandwidth. You don't have the capacity to deal with all of those questions. You've got questions much closer to home. But what I offer you, what I would tell you, what I suggest to you is that it's still the same level of questioning and it still carries the same level of importance in your world as it does in mine. I've spent most of my last 12 and a half years asking, why are we doing this? And most of the time, the answer I get back is some form of, because that's what we've always done. But if you find yourself frustrated where you work, where you live, if you find yourself frustrated, even personally with something that you continue to do, but when you sit back and think about it, you're like, I don't know why I'm still doing this. I don't know why my family still worry about it. I don't know why my coworkers are still worried about it. I don't know why my boss keeps telling me to do it. I cannot draw a connection between this and the bottom line. I cannot draw a connection between this and my family's safety, health, well-being. I cannot draw a connection between this task I'm doing right now and anything meaningful in the future. If you're frustrated by that, ask a simple question: Why am I doing this? And then give yourself the time. Give yourself a few minutes, give yourself and a colleague a few minutes to dig back into the history books, to dig back into even the recent past and see what the genesis of that task was. At the time, maybe it made sense. It could have been a brilliant idea three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, but now the reason you started doing it's gone but you're still doing it because inertia is an incredibly powerful force. Last thing, I'll leave you with this. Another story. Two years ago, when I first started my job at the university, I was talking with our students, with our trainees. And I remember being in this program in 2003, 2004, 2005, and every spring term, we would work out outside as often as possible, right? Unless it was early spring and snowing, late spring and raining, right? If, if the temperature was anything above freezing, we were outside, in sweats or not. By the time April came and then May, shorts and t-shirts, 55, 60 degrees in the morning, and everybody loved it. We wanted to be outside as much as we could. Fast forward to when I'm an instructor now, and the entire spring workout schedule is built, And at no point have we ever talked about going outside. Everything is inside the field house or inside of a gym on a basketball court. And students are complaining like, well, workouts are just kind of boring. It's the same old thing every week, every month, every semester. The seniors, right? We have uh, workouts look the same for all four years. So I'm sitting in a meeting with some of the senior cadets, with some of the fourth year cadets who are leaders in the organization. And I look at them, I say, hey, so I'm just curious, um, have you guys ever talked about working out outside, right? I mean, it, we're coming into spring term. Um, I think this was February, maybe beginning of March when I asked the question, weather was already starting to turn for the better. Have we thought, have we thought about it? Have we talked about it? Is there a reason we don't do it? And the senior, the senior among them, so the senior commander in the room, she looks right at me and she says, she looks at me puzzled. And then she says, Well, we asked to work out outside when we were freshmen. And the instructors said no. And I just stared for a second and I looked around the room and folks were nodding, right? Everybody was a member of that same class. And so they were all freshmen when they got that first no. And in my mind, I thought, That's. That's maybe two or three predecessors behind me or ahead of me, I should say, folks who came before me, two or three levels deep, who said no to a question for Lord knows why. It doesn't matter why. We're three years in the future. It never occurred to anybody simply to ask, why are we not asking again? So even if you've asked, why are we doing this? And you get a response that's not satisfactory, but you're stuck there. The boss says, because I said so. That's not leadership, It's not a good place to be, but you may not have a choice right now, and I get that. But that also doesn't mean you don't ask the question again in the future. Find a different environment, find a different way to engage. If the boss changes out, ask the question again. If you have a good argument for why you're asking, if you have a good argument to do it a better way, then you absolutely should ask, why are we doing this? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we train this way? Why am I teaching this instead of that? Why is this important versus that when I thought this was the ultimate goal? These are some of the most important questions you can ask yourself and your team. And I charge you, I challenge you, ask yourself that question about something this week. And you'd be surprised what kind of improvement what kind of push forward you can really create by asking a simple question, why? Have a great morning. Never stop asking questions. Stay safe. Lead well. We'll talk to you soon.